Hello and welcome back to What Do You Know For Sure podcast with me, Anne Hughes. In this episode, I am delighted to have spoken to Dr Jessica Taylor this week. This is an interview that I have been setting up for quite some time, so it was great to actually get time with her because I know how busy she is. If you don't know Dr Jessica Taylor, she is a best-selling author. She's a chartered psychologist. She's got a PhD in forensic psychology. She's also the CEO of Victim Focus and she is just speaking about stuff that is so important. I have been listening to her work and following her for about three years now, so it was great to get the opportunity to chat to her. And really, what she knew for sure were a couple of things, after probably acknowledging that she doesn't think that we know a lot for sure, but she went on to talk about trauma and fame and how the trauma can affect us all and how we are sort of maybe a wee bit mixed up on what fame really is and how it affects us, how it can affect us. This is just a great episode that I was so pleased to get to record. Massive thanks uh, to Jess because I know that she is very busy. So it was great to have this opportunity and I hope that you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Dr Jessica Taylor, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, tell us a bit about you. I am the director of Victim Focus and we work to challenge and change and influence the way victims, usually women and girls, are portrayed and treated when they've been subjected to violence and abuse and oppression and trauma. I'm a chartered psychologist and I am a Sunday Times bestselling author of two books. The first one is Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, which looks at the psychology of victim blaming of women. And the second is Sexy But Psycho, How Patriarchy Uses Women's Trauma Against Them, which is pretty self-explanatory. So yeah, busy is what I am. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I know that we've had this in the diary for a really long time. And I did actually see you speak in Glasgow at the Sea Women Conference, so that oh, was did you? Um, yeah, I think that was October two thousand and nineteen, not long before the that pandemic. That was so long ago. I know <laughs> it feels like forever because of lockdown. It just feels like that was like a lifetime ago. I know, I know. I feel as if I do know you because you do so much stuff online. I, I follow all that, so it's great to have you on the podcast. And thank you for making time for it. So you know what the question is, and I'm going to ask you: What do you know for sure? So. The first thing that I was going to say is nothing. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I I was thinking like about what it was that sprung to mind straight away. I I think we should just go with that because it's such an, they're they're like my natural answers without like trying to structure them, which is the first thing that came to mind was that I'm absolutely sure that we've got our entire understanding of the human brain, human trauma, human experience, human distress, wrong. I think we're totally wrong. If it was so far wrong, it's actually laughable. And then the second thing that came to my mind, which is a completely different topic, so you can pick either of them, um, is that I've become more and more certain that I absolutely hate being in the public eye. I regret all of it. And that I don't think anybody actually, I think there's probably like three people who know me. And I think other than that, everybody's just got this weird sort of version of me. So go with either of those, but I'm pretty certain about both of them. Wow. I think like I'm sure we can tie them both in. I'm fascinated by the brain because, I don't think you know this, Jess, 
I had a brain aneurysm in 2017. So we really, mm-hmm. really poorly. I got a platinum coil in there. And wow. I, I know, I know. And quite a wee lengthy recovery and stuff and very much redone my life. So that's why I do all the stuff I do now. So I'm fascinated about why you think we're getting the brain wrong. Because I depend on people making sure that my brain's all right. <laughs> and I, I, think, I know you're speaking in other ways as well. I am, yeah. Because I think that, I think to some extent, we're pretty good with anatomy and structure. And we're pretty good with things like understanding what um, an acquired brain injury would do. Uh-huh. to brain function I think we're not too bad with that I also though do think that we have to accept that neuroscience is a subject in its infancy it's literally literally like what you're talking 50 years old 60 years old at a push you know if you consider that we have been we have had other areas of science for hundreds of years and we still really have only scratched the surface of what we understand neuroscience is right at the beginning I think that even in our lifetime before I die I think that we will find things about the brain that none of us can even actually imagine right now like things that we don't know are possible and I think that that will continue for centuries as long as we don't blow each other up first which is quite likely so there's there's that element of like the practical stuff but actually yeah when I talk about it I talk more about the psychology and just the the myths, the constant generalizations and narratives about what people think that they know about the brain and just about our about our human experience and about trauma and mental health. I just think we've got it all wrong. And I think that we're I think we're causing immense damage to like human growth and human development. I'm certain of that. I think we I think we're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Cause I think like there's there's two things that are spring in mind. One it's about like my daughter who's a student and she's quite stressed, and I'm me saying to her, it's okay to have stress about things that are stressful, because I think now there is a tendency for people to just be labelling that all stress and all anxiety is bad, whereas sometimes we need a wee bit of that. But I think there's also something Ooh. about trauma, because I recently, uh, a few months ago, went to a conference, and some of the people I met there are on the podcast, and it was called the Compassionate Prisons Project. don't know if you know anything about that, and they were talking about how at least 80% of prisoners are traumatised by their life. Some significant trauma has happened to them, usually as a yeah. child. Yeah. And I think it's about how do we actually decipher, you know, what's going on in the world? Because this affects, and trauma, I think especially, I don't know if you've seen the, the study that was done in Wales around about the pandemic with people that were vaccine hesitant, and a massive proportion of them had at least two Childhood AC. trauma, right? Uh-huh. And so I think mm. we all need to take responsibility, don't we? Yes. And I also think there's a line between taking responsibility and understanding trauma and using trauma to excuse bad behaviour, because I think that um, we also are treading a fine line around excusing things like perpetrator behaviour on the basis that they had a bad childhood or on the basis that they've been traumatised. And so that's a problem as well. But yeah, I mean, I think that what we need to understand much much more than we currently do is that human life is traumatic and distressing we live in a very difficult society we live in capitalism millions of people are in poverty they are bullied at school for example that's a trauma that's abuse we don't call bullying abuse which I find weird like we call that bullying as if that's a different thing but really what you're it's abuse you know it's kids abusing each other 
and the trauma from bullying stays with you for the rest of your life lots and to the point where it's almost like if you think about some of these things I'm saying they're actually seen as like almost acceptable where people will go oh what's up with you you bullied as a child do you know what I mean it's like people understand that it is imprinting on people for the rest of their lives but not enough for them to figure out that yes that actually is a thing it will shape you you know for the rest of your life right the world is is just hard it's it's a it's a hard place to live it's a hard place to survive lots of people don't survive it you know and they're, they're actively wanting to escape it they don't want to be here and they are struggling to think of a reason to stay alive you know and for some reason that's seen as a mental illness and I I just don't think it is I think that when you are presented day in day out with severe distress struggling to cope not being able to I don't know pay your bills or like get food or not knowing where you're going to live you know or not knowing how to parent your kids or having your kids removed from you or you were removed from your parents or I don't know any anything it could be that you've had to move areas or you're sofa surfing you're homeless you know, like there's so many things that could be happening to you, even just in a country like this, which is considered developed. Mm. We have a global trauma. We are we are millions and millions of people that are traumatized. And you know what I find fascinating as well as the amount of professionals that are like, oh, you know, this is the misuse of understanding of trauma. Not everything's a trauma. I'm not talking about I don't know, someone going, oh, um, I don't like my job. Uh, It doesn't fulfill me and it's traumatic. No, I'm talking about actual traumas. The fact that in your lifetime, your parents are going to die, your siblings are going to die, lots of your friends are eventually going to die. You might have big emotional break, like breakups with partners. You might get divorced several times. You know, you could have friendships that meant the world to you and then they they break down or you move away from each other or one of you moves job and you never see each other again or you know you might lose your pets you might be in an accident you might get chronic illness you might have um, an acute illness there's so many things that could traumatize you and I just don't understand why we don't validate those and instead we're telling people that they're mentally ill yeah Uh uh-huh and see your book so I've got both of your books I've not finished reading sexy but cycle yet but that the subheading of that is how the patriarchy uses women's trauma against them and that real feeling of you know it's challenging it's uncomfortable if you don't feel uncomfortable then you're not paying attention sort of a thing is what I would say Mm. about that you know what else would you say about how the world reacts to women's trauma because it is used against women time and time again there's a victim blaming that how do we move past that or can we you know, for wanting a better word, are we just fucked? I think that we've severely damaged our own potential. I think we've clipped our own wings as a human species. And I think that we've made a lot of mistakes and the types of change that we now require to put us back to where it is that we need to be are drastic and systemic and global. And that includes challenging systems that are simply understood as patriarchy, but there, there's much bigger systems than that. There's we don't even address things like the fact that we actually encourage people to hate each other. We encourage people to be in competition with each other. There's no collaborative approach mm-hmm. to humanity. Like everything is about divide and conquer and individuality, individuality, and like competition. Like it's we we're not on a path to development we're on a path to destruction and patriarchy is one part of that because obviously men have got the majority control of the majority of systems in the world but I do think that women are contributing to that as well I think that women 
are groomed into misogyny from birth. Mm-hmm. So women hate each other. Women pull each other down on top of the systemic control by men anyway and the violence from men and sort of, you know, controlling of reproductive rights and human rights and things like that. I just, I sometimes I do feel like we're fucked and then other times I feel like if we built it, why can't we destroy it? If we if we constructed this prison that we live in, why can't, like, I, I don't understand why it's so hard because I'm at a period of my life at the moment where I feel really alien all the time, sort of like, I don't understand why there are billions of us and, and millions of people can see problems with things, but then they don't, they either don't really want change or they're not ready for it or... yeah. Or they can't really like envisage it or they don't really want to put the effort into it or they're scared of change. Familiarity is safer to them or something like that. And I do think that change is possible. And I think that I can demonstrate that over and over again. There's lots of things that I'm able to change on these tiny levels, even within, I don't know, one company or one organization, one police force or, you know, with one book or something like that even like the thousands of women that have read it that write to me and say, this book changed the way I see myself and now I don't blame myself anymore or I don't think I'm mentally ill anymore. I think I'm totally normal and that I'm reacting to all these traumas that I went through as a kid or whatever. And like, there there's like micro changes, but if there was enough of us doing that, we could create serious change. But I just don't know if people really want it that much. Mm. But I suppose, you know, we always need a, a committed minority that's going to keep pushing forward with this stuff don't we yeah yeah and you end up unfortunately relying on those types of people in a in a, in any community or society for any form of activism or change that there, there ends up being almost like um a messenger that gets repeatedly shot because they're the person that does the the talking whilst everybody else sort of goes oh i i agree with that i think that's right you know but doesn't really do anything and that they're they're still required as well but it does mean that you end up a target you know because you're the per- you're like the figurehead of an idea but when you're not really I d- yeah I think that we can do it there's lots of things that I want to do before I die there's a lot of change I want to make and there's a lot of legacies that I need to leave in order for me to sort of get to an age where I'm ready to go where I think I think I've had enough of an impact that not necessarily that I'll have solved anything but at the bare minimum that I could have passed down influence to other generations that can then continue it mm-hmm and I suppose that really in, in talking about the patriarchy and everything comes down to that other thing you said you knew for sure you hate being in the public eye. Now, I can only imagine how the patriarchy and how a lot of people that have got very internalised misogyny and things as well must react to you. So tell us, what is it that makes you know for sure that the public eye probably isn't everything that some people think it is? So I've been writing a lot about this recently because I'm trying to process it myself, but I have realised that you are sold a version of publicity and fame at all times from all angles. So right up to like Hollywood, all the way to like even just being well known in your own town or something like that, that that in some way that's advantageous and that it, it gives you a better network or it gives you more power in society. And actually like the more well like sort of the more public I've become and then also the celebrities that I know like there's more and more women that contact me privately that are like a-list celebrities people that women that people would know where I've realized they live in fear 
they're not, they're not getting anything good from this. They, they can't go to the shop. They can't spend time with their family. They can't, they can't just go on a normal holiday. They can't, you know, decide that they fancy having a mooch around somewhere. They can't, like, they, they're like, they, they live in a prison. Public, the public sort of sphere and living in the public eye is not a normal way to live. It's traumatic and it, it's, it's not what it looks like. And you, you sort of have a, a version of life that isn't normal and you have to like adapt to that in order to create whatever it is you're doing. So if you're a musician, then obviously it'd be about you creating your music and you have to almost sacrifice a normal human life in order to go and do that. And then like in, in an activist way, you have to sacrifice a normal human life in order for the activism or the change, because unfortunately you need like a public platform in order to create that change. But that means that millions of people think they know you and you realise that you know no one. Ah, that is all, doesn't it? I mean, see if we were to get an old-fashioned scale out, right, and we were to put on one side that message that you hope that you can spread by the time you leave the earth, that you Mm -hmm. have spread a message that makes a difference. On the other side, we put the sacrifices of being in the public eye. Have you got where that scale goes just now? Have you got a notion of, is it level? Do you think that, that the contribution, I need to make the sacrifice, or is it uneven, do you think, just now? I think that the impact that of what I'm trying to do outweighs the personal cost, but mm. that doesn't mean that I'm comfortable with the personal cost. And there are many times where I consider totally giving up um, and just sort of like, almost like disappearing and having just a completely normal life and just going back to being a normal person again. But I also, I look at how much change I've already caused and the amount of influence I've already had in places that I didn't even know was possible. You know, for example, like the UN contacted me and was like, we've changed all the wording in our policies and and documents because several of our senior leaders had read your books and suggested that actually you were right. We shouldn't be using the term experienced abuse. We should be using the term subjected to that women are subjected to abuse. They don't experience it. Cause I said in my book, so that's too neutral. Yeah. And you know, they wrote to me and was like, we've decided to change everything because that's, that is accurate. You are subjected to oppression and crime. You are, you do not experience it on your own. And I was like, fucking hell, <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know, I had no idea that like people huh? like that were reading it. And I also know that a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I can't talk about. I know that a lot of women, very, very influential women in the world have read the books and it changed them and influenced them. And that's very private to them. And I, and I wouldn't talk about who they were, but you know, I know that the influence that I'm having is working, but the personal cost is absolutely appalling. Um, and I and I know now that, like for certain, that it it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I made a very big mistake. I thought that other people were looking for the kind of collaborative change that I was looking for, and I I made a huge mistake in thinking that people were on the same wavelength as me, and that. 
I'm not here for competition with women. I'm here for collaboration. And like, I thought we were all going to work together. And I thought that even professionals, so I'm a psychologist. I thought all psychologists were here to work together towards something better. I hadn't realized there was so much territorialism and so much like classism and elitism and competition, jealousy, like backstabbing. I didn't know any of that existed. And I feel sometimes I feel a bit stupid now because I thought that I was stepping into something where everybody was like, right, let's create this change. And I was like, yeah, let's fucking go for it. And then everyone was like, everyone was like, shut up, you, you're too young. Or, shut up, what do you fucking know? Or who are you? How long have you been? Like, I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> you know, that's I wasn't expecting that kind of like response. And um, there, are, yeah, it's really like forced me to reflect on what I thought I knew. And now I've realized that I don't know a great deal. <laughs> no. I mean, and I think you do know an awful lot. So it's fascinating, isn't it? That whole notion of being in competition like you. I'm not in competition with anybody. I just want to be better than I was yesterday. Or not, yeah. you know, we're all on the journey. And again, I'm up for the collaboration. I'm not in competition with anybody. I just, you know, I win or I learn. But where does the psychology of that even come from, do you think, with your, you know, your experience and your knowledge? I think a range of things I think first of all we are brought up unfortunately in individualistic so it's more common in like white western individualistic cultures and communities which prize the achievements and the failures of the individual so the individual is the problem the individual is the solution the individual is the cause and the root of everything and that means that you end up believing that as well unfortunately which leads to a lot of game playing personal sort of power play with people trying to get one over on them trying to shut them down or getting almost like personally offended when somebody else does something positive because it's because you reflect instead of looking at that person and thinking wow isn't that's awesome like like that's so cool isn't that awesome that they've done that instead of looking at that and then that's where that thought stops it goes I wish I could do that why haven't I done that with my life or like oh I would never be able to do that or that's so unfair that they can do that and I can't and that's the bit that's toxic that's the like the add-on bit like somebody commented on one of my posts the other day because I was talking about how like jealousy and envy with each other is like severely harming our human development because we can't work together whilst we actually want to like beat each other yeah and somebody put underneath it like, oh, I, you know, I'm a very jealous person. I feel like my jealousy of other people's success motivates me. And I was like, that's toxic as fuck. That's it. You shouldn't, you, you should not be motivated by hating somebody else's success. You should be motivated by your own stuff for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, that's not happening either. And so there's that. I think that also, if you look at it from like an evolutionary psychology type theory way, there's almost like there's the basics of like human resource type stuff where you're like fighting to be the best or for the resources in a society or in an environment. But I think there's like misogyny involved in it. Like I always talk to Jay, my wife, I always talk to her about the fact that in women's, especially in women's spaces or in a female industry, me and Jamie call it, there can only be one like we just whenever we say that to each other we know what each other means and so the the concept of there can only be one is like when women are in an industry or doing something it's almost as if only one woman can be the the top woman of that and everybody else then becomes her competition and men aren't like that because they've already got over that so like there can be several men at the top of an industry where they all know that they're all at the top of their game but like with women it's like 
there can only be one at the top and then everybody else is pit against her and then it becomes like a problem and then it becomes competition and side swiping and snidey comments and stuff like that and the reason that we ended up talking about this so much was because I'm a huge hip-hop fan and um, I've been watching you know like I've, I've been following hip-hop like avidly since I was about 10 and th- 32 now so 22 years of like being obsessed with like hip-hop and whatever's going on and stuff and I absolutely adore everything about it and the thing is with like men in hip-hop is that there can be multiple men at the top of the charts in that music genre and they can all be doing something very different and they won't be pit against each other as if like they're warring or beefing at any one time right but if let's say a woman like let's say Nicki Minaj for example is at the top of the charts there will always be some beef with some other female rapper that's like, oh, she's not as good as her. And like, oh, she's going to come up and steal her crown and take her spot. And actually I see that everywhere. I don't just, it's not just in that. It's not just in this tiny little pocket. It's everywhere. Uh-huh. Yeah. I could do with maybe reincarnating about 10 more times. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although uh, that's that's not true either, because I would get sick to death. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom with me on the podcast. Okay, uh-huh. that's all right. Thanks for talking good to luck. me. Good luck with everything next, and thank you for the good stuff you're putting out in the world. Thank you very much. <laughs>